The scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to look there. It'll also be on the screen. Let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. And in my church, when we finish a scripture reading, we always say the word of the Lord, and everybody responds with thanks be to God. Let's try that. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Do you ever find it difficult to be present where you are? I was at a wedding last weekend with my wife, Elizabeth. It was her cousin's wedding, and it was a very nice wedding with games and with food and with drinks and a photo booth and even Byride ice cream. <laughs> All the stuff you'd need to keep yourself occupied. But for some reason, during the wedding, I found myself getting restless. I didn't have anywhere else to be, but I felt distracted. At various points in the evening, my wife, who loves dancing, tried to drag me out onto the dance floor, and I was awkwardly trying to do my moves, which, as you can see, I'm not a good dancer, and I just wasn't fully present. I couldn't get into it. So I snuck off the dance floor, and I grabbed my phone, and I decided to check the Warriors game score. <laughs> Started to think about what I needed to do the next day. Uh, I checked the Warriors score again. And then I asked Elizabeth if we might leave early, to which I received a scowl. I checked the Warriors score again. When we finally got home, my wife looked at me and she was like, what's up with you? Like, where were you tonight? And I said, I don't know. I, I just felt restless. Do you ever have moments like that? You just feel like it's difficult to be where you are. Maybe you're not even sure where you want to be. You're just restless. Not all restlessness is in itself negative. But restlessness is often the sign that something is not all right. Something is not as it should be. In the creation story narrated by the book of Genesis... All of God's creative work culminated in rest. Rest was a sign of wholeness and goodness. It's a picture of harmony and communion. Everything as it should be. But then in Genesis 3, with the entrance of sin, our world became restless. And the story of humanity is the story of restlessness. 
I have restlessness, you have restlessness, we all have some kind of restlessness. So there's always been a certain amount of restlessness that people have dealt with, but in some ways, I think the degree of restlessness right now in our era and here in our city in particular is pretty intense. Politically speaking, I don't even need to tell you that things are really hot right now. Restless might be an understatement. I've lived here in San Francisco for about nine years now, almost nine, and I've noticed that there's a kind of restlessness that permeates the entire culture of San Francisco, and I don't think it's accidental. In many ways, San Francisco cultivates restlessness. Our city prides itself on never being satisfied. Keep in mind that our primary industry, that of technology, is built on the relentless pursuit of novelty, the desire to disrupt status quo. And we're surrounded by people all the time who are looking to ladder climb or to network. There's always a group of people who are ready to pivot to the next new thing. And then there's this anxiety that many people feel that comes from the implicit message in our culture here, which says, if you're not part of a cool startup, or if you're not serving on some nonprofit that's changing the world, or if you're not doing something that's furthering some cause somewhere in the world, then what are you doing with your life? Yeah, somebody resonates with that out there. Yeah. <laughs> I've met so many people since I moved to San Francisco that are having quarter-life crises. I didn't even know there was such a thing as quarter-life crises until I moved here. And then to add to all this pressure, talk about dating or finding romantic fulfillment, which is never more pronounced than Valentine's Day, right? I hate Valentine's Day. <laughs> Honey, I love you, but I hate Valentine's Day. I hate it so much. It's so much pressure. When you add social media to everything that I'm mentioning, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are continually pouring forth an endless stream of evidence proving to us that we are constantly missing out on something somewhere. And when you consider the thousands of people who are constantly coming and going from the Bay Area and the ridiculous cost of living here, what you have is a recipe for restlessness. So the, restless, so the result of all this is that we live and move and we have our being in an ocean of restlessness. It's all around us, but more importantly, it's inside of us. It causes us to live on edge. We always have to keep one eye on the future. We're constantly seduced to compare ourselves to other people. And all of this pressure makes us want to escape, whether that's in the form of some substance that we use, or it's technology, or it's just working way too many hours. It's all pretty much doing the same thing. So what are we to do about this restlessness? This morning, I'm going to suggest that we receive this restlessness as an invitation to anchor ourselves in the steadfastness of Christ. St. Augustine gave us the formula for this 1,600 years ago when he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Can you say that with me, actually? Let's say it together. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So what I want to talk about is actually how to anchor our hearts in Christ. And practically speaking, I can summarize what I'm going to say with a single word. Stability. 
Pastor Dave mentioned to me that a couple of months ago, you folks did a values series here in which he talked about roots. So what I'm going to say this morning is an attempt to build on what he articulated about the importance of stability. And if you didn't hear his teaching, I recommend that you go back and listen to it because it'll give you a practical uh, sense of what's happening in this culture and your church here. So let's talk about stability. About 1,500 years ago, the Roman Empire was crumbling. Literally, after repeated barbarian invasions and generations of internal conflict, the Roman Empire was a shadow of what it had once been. All around the Mediterranean, the formerly glorious buildings were falling apart. The infrastructure of society was crumbling as education and civic life collapsed. It was a very restless time. In the midst of all this, a Christian named Benedict, who lived in Italy, began gathering people together into communities for the purpose of training them to live all of life in reference to Christ. Benedict recognized that in the midst of the, the restlessness, what was desperately needed was a means of creating order and stability. The communities that he created were not an escape from life. They were a place to live out the earthy mundaneness of working and eating and studying and praying and all the rest of life. He and his twin sister Scholastica established a series of parallel communities with members taking vows and committing to live according to a particular rhythm of life. What resulted was amazing. These communities became a source of renewal to the church and to society at large at precisely the same moment that much of Europe was slipping into darkness. Some historians even credit these Benedictine communities, as they came to be called, with saving Western civilization. And right at the heart of Benedict's model of discipleship was a vow. A vow to live with what he called stability. The vow of stability meant that a person was committed to a particular group of people and to a particular way of life together with those people. And in Benedict's case, the vow was a lifelong vow. Now, probably very few, if any of us here, are ever going to formally enter into a monastic vow of any kind. But there are some valuable things that we can learn from St. Benedict and others who have practiced a life of stability. Benedict was a proponent of stability, but it didn't, he didn't come up with the idea, actually. The concept goes right back to the pages of the New Testament. So what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a few minutes, uh, I want to spend a few minutes exploring a passage in 1 Corinthians that lays out a helpful framework for talking about stability. So again, if you have your Bible, you want, you want to keep it open there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or you can follow along on, on the screen. Uh, before we get into the passage, let me give you a bit of context about what Paul is dealing with. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing a church that is struggling, again, with restlessness. Part of what's fueling the restlessness is the fact that the, the Christian faith has disrupted the social order. When a person became a follower of Jesus uh, and they were initiated into the body of Christ through baptism the previous socially distinguishing factors of their life were relativized. You can see this, for example, in Galatians 3.28, where Paul says, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Or the same idea in Colossians 3.11. 
There's no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is in all, Christ is all and in all. Now Paul isn't saying, for example, that people of Jewish descent are no longer Jews or that women are no longer recognizably women. He's not saying that these distinctions don't exist. He's saying that in the body of Christ, the social reality is reshaped around the fact that we are brothers and sisters in the household of God. Race and class and gender or any other means of creating a pecking order are rendered irrelevant in Christ. So in this new social reality, this new community called the church, everything was cattywampus, upside down. For example, in the year 217, I like history, you can tell, sorry. Uh, in the year 217, a slave named Callistus is elected the bishop of Rome. Now, it must have been shocking to people outside of the church to see the most prominent, most highly, the highest authoritative position in the church go to a slave. But for those inside the church, this shouldn't have been strange at all. This is radical stuff. But while this was happening inside of the church, it didn't necessarily change things for a person outside of the social context of the church. If you were a slave of a non-Christian master, you might very well be the elder in church, but when you got done with worship and you stepped back outside the social reality of the church, you went right back to being a slave. Or in another case, you might have been married to a non-Christian before you became a Christian, but now that you're a Christian and part of a new household, the household of God, what does that mean for your marriage? Or what about your ethnic and cultural commitments to your relatives? Now that you're a Christian, should you try to pretend that you don't have your distinctive ethnic background? All these questions are swirling around in the church of Corinth. And as you can imagine, it created some, some restlessness. So Paul addresses this, this situation with a message that I think may not have been terribly popular in his day. But what he says has some profound implications for understanding stability. His message can be summarized in verse 24. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Paul is offering us a paradigm of stability. Let's begin by going back and looking at verse 17. Let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandments of God is everything. And there's a little bit of irony in that statement because one of the commandments in the Old Testament for the Jewish person was to be circumcised. But we'll leave that aside for now. Verse 20. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Now let me pause for a second and clarify uh, this word call, since it's really important to this passage. When Paul uses the word call, he's talking about the invitation to follow Jesus. In the Christian faith, we must remember that it is always God who initiates the process of salvation. God calls, we respond. God calls, we respond. Okay, so with that in place, 
you can see that Paul's principle is pretty clear in verse 20. Let each of you remain in the condition, the life situation, you might say, in which you were called. Wherever God found you, that's where you should stay. This is the principle that he's articulating throughout the entire chapter. If you're married, he says, stay married. If you're married to an unbeliever, don't seek divorce. If they divorce you, that's on them. If you're a circumcised Jew, don't try to change that. If you're a Gentile, don't seek to become a Jew. He goes on to talk later in the chapter about, uh, about people who are unmarried. And he goes on to clarify that he doesn't have a direct word from the Lord, but uh, he thinks in general that it's better to remain unmarried. One of the least popular verses with single people. <laughs> Paul's bias across the board is towards social stability. But the next section is especially challenging. Verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. Now there's, there's a tricky nuance in the Greek going on there. So the New International Version has it slightly different. It says, were you a slave when, when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. The point of both translations though is the same. Being a slave or not being a slave doesn't change whom you belong to and who you truly are. As one commentator put it, a Christian's identity and value do not derive from social conditions, but from the call of God in Christ. You've got to wrap your minds and your hearts around that. Because if we get our hearts and minds wrapped around that, I'll tell you, it'll transform our lives. So much of the restlessness that we feel is because we have allowed ourselves to buy into the lie that our social condition, that our status in society, or in our workplace, or in our family, or wherever we are, that that is the thing that defines our value. And if that's the case, then we're going to be endlessly restless. Because there's always someone who's just ahead of us, or always someone who's threatening our precarious place, or someone who's looking down at us in some certain way. But Paul wants to sever the connection between our social status and our status in Christ. And he's trying to do it in even the most extreme of circumstances, that of slavery. Even if you're a slave, he says, even if you don't have the power over your own life, even if you're at the bottom of the stack in society, Paul says, in Christ, you're a son in the household of God. And the credibility of the gospel depends on, on the fact that this is lived out in the experience of the church. Paul continues his thought in verse 22. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. Slavery and freedom, Paul says, it really depends on how you look at it. Either way, we're all a slave or a free person. The slave is the free person in Christ, and the free person is the slave of Christ. Paul often refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Now, just in case we're concerned that Paul is downplaying the difficulty of slavery, he goes on to reveal his actual opinion about it. Verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. Slavery is definitely not neutral for him whatsoever. 
He clearly sees it as opposed to the whole vision of God for humanity. In fact, he knows that the whole story of the people of God is one of deliverance from slavery into freedom in, Christ, in God. It's also clear that Paul feels how Paul feels about slavery when you look at his letter to Philemon, where he appeals for the freedom of a slave named Onesimus as a necessary implication of the gospel. And it's these seeds of subversion that were sown by the earliest Christians and embodied over time by the Christian community that eventually sprouted and uh, led to widespread abolitionist movements across the world that have led to slavery being declared illegal all around the world and which we're still trying, trying to snuff out right now with the anti-slavery movements. But it all started with Paul helping a community of people to see that their status in Christ is what mattered most. So what Paul is saying is not in opposition to the transformation of society. He's not a political quietist. But his primary concern is not changing the policies of the Roman Empire. His primary concern is getting the church to embody the implications of the gospel. That's what matters to him. And Paul repeats his principle of stability again, echoing verse 20 and verse 24. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Now let's be honest. This is not an easy message. It's not, it wasn't easy in Paul's time and it's not easy in ours. It runs against our instincts in many ways. We often think that the cure for restlessness is more freedom. Our instincts tell us that if we only had better options and more choices, we would be less restless. But there's a mountain of evidence that points the exact opposite direction. Dr. Barry Schwartz, professor of psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, he wrote a book about 10 years ago now. It's called The Paradox of Choice. And in this book, he demonstrates that while we all say we like to have a wide variety of choices, it turns out that more choices do not equate to more satisfaction or less restlessness. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. He talks about what he calls maximizers and satisfizers. Maximizers are people who feel like they have to explore and thoroughly evaluate all the options before they can finally make the optimal choice. It's like going to the ice cream store with my wife Elizabeth. She has to try every flavor and she gets away with it every time. But even then, once these maximizers have studied the field of choices, they're often tortured by it. Because what if a new choice suddenly emerges and they discover that it's too late and they can't have the better option? There's some maximizers out here, I know. Yeah. Then there's the satisficers. Satisficers, on the other hand, are people who, they see the available choices, they make their choice, and then, this is the key, they stop looking for more choices. They're satisfied with good enough. They're okay with limited choices and with sticking with their decision. Now, Schwartz's research clearly shows that maximizers are much less happy with life than satisficers. Not because they make worse choices, but because they can never be satisfied with the choices that they make. And that makes maximizers incredibly restless people. Maximizers can never have enough choices. They're convinced that their restlessness would be resolved if they just had a few more possibilities to explore. But the truth, according to Schwartz, is the exact opposite. 
Thomas Merton, another monastic, in his biography, uh, Seven Story Mountain, tells about how after years of running around and pursuing all sorts of uh, freedom without any commitment, he felt such joy in coming to the monastery where he would spend the rest of his life as a monk. And he, he was led in by a monk uh, in, into the gate. And then in the famous line from this biography, this autobiography, he says, Brother Matthew locked the gate behind me and I was enclosed within the four walls of my new freedom. We often think that our restlessness can be managed by keeping our options open and by keeping our, our commitments to a minimum. But what if it's ex the exact opposite? Maybe it's by embracing commitment and stability that we're able to grow and to actually find rest. We want to believe that finding a spouse or getting a new job or making more money or getting a house with a yard or having children or whatever it is, whatever circumstance change you look for, that that will finally be the answer to our restlessness. But instead, Paul invites us to remain where we are. He challenges us to embrace stability. Listen to these wise words from a Christian writer named Anthony Bloom. What is it then to be stable? It seems to me that it may be described in the following terms. You will find stability at the moment when you discover that God is everywhere, that you do not need to seek him elsewhere, that he is here, and if you do not find him here, it is useless to go and search for him elsewhere. Because it is not him that is absent from us, it is we who are absent from him. It is important to recognize that it is useless to seek God somewhere else. If you cannot find him here, you will not find him anywhere else. Isn't that good? In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. If God found you somewhere, he's still there with you. In Mark chapter 5, we're told the story of how Jesus casts the demons out of the man who lived in the region of Gerasenes. This man had lived a crazy life. We're described about how he was naked and running around and cutting himself and couldn't be chained down even. And everybody knew about his shameful past. So after Jesus casts the demon out of him and Jesus is getting ready to leave the area, the man comes to Jesus and he begs him to let him come with him. But in verse 19 of chapter 5, Mark records, quote, Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. Jesus echoes the same principle as Paul. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Now, it might sound to some of you like I'm bringing a difficult word for you this morning. But I want you to hear that there's some really good news in this. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad they seem to you, no matter how restless you feel, God is there. Even when Jonah ran as far as he could from God, he discovered that he could not outrun God. 
Even when Joseph was sold into slavery, when he was rejected by his own family, even when he was falsely accused and he was put in prison, God was there. No matter what your circumstances, God can meet you where you are. A few years back, I went through a wrenchingly difficult season in my life. After a very chaotic and painful time with a church that I had planted, I found myself completely burned out, just fried. My vision for ministry here in San Francisco was all but gone. Mercifully, my wife and I were given some time off from the church to try to get renewed. And the hope was that uh, we would come back after the sabbatical with a renewed sense of vision. But when we returned to the city, it was actually worse. I felt incredibly restless. In fact, I was so restless that I became convinced that God was ready to move us to some other place. The only way forward that I could imagine was a change in circumstances. It wasn't long before we had a potential ministry position in another city to consider. And to be honest, we weren't really that jazzed about it. Didn't seem that great. But we decided we'd at least drop by and check out the church for a Sunday service. So we did that. And it turned out to be one of those moments that God must have been chuckling about. The pastor had prepared a message uh, that sounded like it was precisely for us. He was one of those pastors who likes to use like an outline with blanks in it. And he had six points. And one by one, as he went through the sermon, we found, my wife and I found ourselves more and more dumbfounded. Uh, if he wanted us to come and join him, he was preaching the wrong sermon. When he got to, to point number five, his point was this. To get the job done well, we must stay in one place. Elizabeth and I looked at each other, and we almost started laughing. It wasn't even subtle. Like, we knew we had to stay where we were. So we got back in our car, we drove back to San Francisco, and we entered into a commitment to stay where we were, even though we didn't even know what that meant. And it wasn't too long after that that God began to birth a new dream in our hearts for what it meant to be where we were. But I'll tell you that that was preceded by more than a two-year desert experience of deep frustration and restlessness. So often we want to escape the restlessness of our lives, but God wants to meet us in the restlessness. We're tempted to leave the community group that got awkward and it got hard. But maybe God wants to meet us there, right in the midst of the awkwardness. We imagine that life could be so good if we just didn't have that awful boss. If we could just go to a new job somewhere else. But maybe God wants to meet us there. Some of you are incredibly restless about finding a spouse. I know something about that. I didn't get married until I was almost 36 years old. But whether or not you ever get married, I know for a fact that if you let him, God can meet you even in that restlessness. What is it that's fueling your restlessness? What if you could receive that as an invitation to more deeply anchor yourself in the steadfastness of Christ? Now, I would be remiss 
to get up here and preach a sermon about stability if I didn't nuance it in some way. There's a kind of pseudo-stability that looks like staying somewhere out of shame or fear or cowardice. That's not what Paul means, and that's not what Benedict means by stability. Stability should also never be confused with disobedience. Remaining in a pattern of sin should never be what we mean by Christian stability. Stability is about staying with difficult circumstances out of faith, even if it means suffering. But the key is that your staying is motivated by faith. Remember how Paul says in Romans 14, he drops this line at the end of his chapter. He says, anything that's not of faith is sin. There's a kind of stability that could be sinful. Imagine if God had come to Abraham 4,000 years ago and told him to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees. But Abraham had said like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm committed to stability. I'm going to stay right here. Our entire story would have been different, right? Or what if Jesus had come to Peter and Andrew and James and John and invited them to leave their nets and their fishing and come follow him? And they were like, no, 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 we're good. We're stable, right? So what matters is, as Paul says, faithfully obeying God. Sometimes we remain in deeply dysfunctional or even dehumanizing situations, not out of obedience or not out of a commitment to faithful stability, but out of cowardice. That's not faithful. Also, stability isn't an end in itself. The point of a commitment to stability is that it helps us anchor our hearts more deeply in Christ. What we really want is stability of heart. And the witness of many generations who have gone before us is that we must practice stability in our lives and in our relationships in order to attain a stability in our hearts. In a restless world in which everything is constantly moving and constantly changing, here's what gives us stability of heart. The steadfastness of Christ. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. His opinion does not evolve over time. And thank God because we know what his opinion is. Romans 5.8 says, But God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we come to the paradox of the gospel. It's through the gospel that we discover paradoxically that it's the restlessness of God for us that makes it possible for us to find rest. We see in Christ that the heart of God is restless until we're back home with him. He's the good shepherd who cannot sleep when one of his sheep is missing. He must go back out onto the hillsides. He must go seeking and searching to find what is missing. So while we're anxiously and restlessly trying to find God, the incredible good news of the gospel is that he has already come in search of us. And his mission is not complete until we're found. He's restless until he gets you back safe at home with him. This is what the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus are all about. God in search of us, restless until he has us back home. It's not accidental, by the way, in the Gospels, that the Gospel writers portray Jesus as deeply restless and agitated in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his death. 
In his incarnation, Jesus took on the overwhelming restlessness of the world. He took it into himself because he knew that the world is not all right. But even in the midst of his restlessness, this overwhelming restlessness, Jesus, in his steadfastness, sure of the Father's love for him, made it his stable commitment to go to the cross in order to offer us a cure for our restlessness. And what is the cure for our restlessness? It's what St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The cure for our restlessness is the security of knowing beyond a shadow of doubt that we have a secure place in God's household. And nothing can change that. Nothing. That and only that can truly address the full extent of our restlessness. And so whatever your restlessness is, here's what I know. It's no match for the steadfastness of God. The stability of his love is plenty strong enough to hold you in your restlessness and to hold the whole restlessness of the whole world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. Thank you that you are the good shepherd that cannot rest until we are at home with you. Thank you that you seek us out, that you call us to yourself. Lord, I pray for courage and I pray for faithfulness and perseverance for people who find themselves today in tough circumstances. You promise, Lord, to meet us in our restlessness. And so I just pray this for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for people who are struggling, who are restless because of fear, or restless because of the politics around us, or restless because they don't have enough money in their bank account to pay rent this month. And I pray for people who are struggling with jobs, people who are struggling in marriages where it feels hard to be steadfast and stable. God, meet us. And I pray for those of us who are restless because of disobedience. Remind us that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray for reality, church. I pray for it in this season that it would be a place of stability in the midst of a deeply unstable culture. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would hold each person here. May they know how much you love them. May you make all this so in the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And let all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen. Amen.